hppodcraft.com. On and on, Coral prowled. The black, moonless, almost starless night yielded reluctantly before a grim, reddish dawn that crept up from his left. A vague, dull light it was that gave no sense of approaching warmth, no comfort, nothing but a cold, diffuse lightness, slowly revealing a nightmare landscape. Black, jagged rock and black, unliving plain took form around him, as a pale red sun peered at last above the grotesque horizon. It was then Coral recognized suddenly that he was on familiar ground. He stopped short. Tenseness flamed along his nerves, his muscles pressed with sudden, unrelenting strength against his bones. His great forelegs, twice as long as his hind legs, twitched with a shuddering movement that arched every razor-sharp claw. The thick tentacles that sprouted from his shoulders ceased their weaving undulation and grew taut with anxious alertness. Utterly appalled, he twisted his great cat head from side to side while the little hair-like tendrils that formed each ear vibrated frantically, testing every vagrant breeze, every throb in the ether. Holy cow! Is that a displacer beast? I think that is a displacer beast. It is a displacer beast from D&D, or, or at least the inspiration. I saw you write that in the notes, and I, I have to admit, I had no idea what you are talking about, but I looked it up. Yep, that's a Dungeons & Dragons monster for sure. Uh-huh. With a terrible name, though, displacer beast? It does this thing where it makes it look like it's not where it is. So it looks like you think it's to your left, but it's actually a little to your right, and then... It's oh. displaced, so it then it gets you. So it's a beast that uses that tap on the shoulder trick. That's its exactly. Uh, That's what it is. Yeah, you got Well, it. I don't know what kind of. I don't even think it's worth speculating what kind of band displacer beast would be, but it's definitely an opening band. That's all I know <laughs> about that. <laughs> this story doesn't do much better with this creature's name. It's spelled C O E U R L, which we heard in the opening. Yes. Despite all my best efforts, I could not say it any differently for, than Rick from The Walking Dead calling for his son. Because that's Coral. what it's spelled like. Coral! Coral. <laughs> Where's Coral? Coral! I was saying Coral. Coral. I don't know if that's the way it's supposed to be, but that's what was coming out in my head. Coral, like a coral reef? Yeah. Well, that's also how Rick pronounces his son's name. So it is. We're both right. <laughs> what a joy. Let's stop now. <laughs> None of these names do justice to this cool monster in this cool but kind of ridiculous story. This is the story Black Destroyer by A.E. Van Vogt, and we're covering it here on HPPodcraft.com, Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer, a descendant of the Swedish Grip family, some of whom moved to Saskatchewan in Canada, then migrated further down into Massachusetts, where my mother was born, before relocating to the prairies of Illinois. And I'm Chris Lackey. TMI, Chris. <laughs> How about you talk about somebody besides yourself for once? Who was that reader? That reader is the illustrious and sensual George Woodruff. His first time on our show, but he is an outstanding individual. He has the world record for the number of potato chips eaten. Yeah, 
How about yeah. that? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And when you say when you say sensual, you are referring to the fact that he has many extra senses yes. that most people don't have. A little like Coral. He can use his ears to sense vibrations and communicate via radio waves, which is how he sent us these recordings. That's great. Didn't have to use email or Dropbox or anything. He just vibrated them on over. Thank you, George, <laughs> for reading. A.E. Van Vogt is a classic sci-fi author. One, I got to say, I never heard of before. I did find this clip of Harlan Ellison trying to get him a Lifetime Achievement Award. I think it's a pretty good introduction to him, so here you go. And now we come to the grand old master himself, A.E. Van Vogt, Alfred E. Van Vogt. In 1930s, in the 1940s, if there had been a Lifetime Achievement Award, A.E. Van Vogt would have gotten it before Asimov. He'd have gotten it before Clark. He'd have gotten it before Bradbury. A.E. Van Vogt was one of the most influential and important writers that we had. He wrote Slan. Slan remains today the best book about mutants you've ever read. This kid, Jami Cross, trying to run away from the purges. And, 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 and the world of Nale. Van Vogt brought non-Aristotelian thinking into the, into the genre. He, he used general semantics as an idea for a novel. The Voyage of the Space Beagle. A.E. Van Vogt was a writer whose work was seminal. He went away in the 50s. He got involved with Dianetics, and he wasn't around for 20 years, and he came back, and he was badly agented, and nobody seems to remember him now. And because he was away and because he was involved with Dianetics for a while, it seems as if no one wants to give him this award. Well, I'm here to tell you folks that I've been trying for two years to get SFWA to give A.E. Van Vogt the award. <laughs> Couldn't mm. give him a solid review. Had to get a little dig there at the end. Yeah, it's pretty high praise for the most part. <laughs> and then he's like, yeah, I know he went nutty for a while, but he's sort of defending him just to oh, say yeah. that doesn't diminish his achievements just because no. he's become known as that. And I got to say, I read this. I liked it. This was the preface from David Drake that was... The internet version of the story had it attached, so I don't know what anthology it's from, but it says, mm -hmm. you can get an argument as to when the golden age of science fiction ended. Well, you can get an argument if you're talking with the right people. Almost everybody agrees that the golden age started with the July 1939 issue of Astounding, however. That's because its cover story was Black Destroyer, the first published science fiction by A.E. Van Vogt. Mm -hmm. So pretty good hype man, David Drake. Yeah. Setting up a pretty high bar. And I got to say, the story is solid conceptually in a lot of ways. But mm -hmm. I, yeah, I thought it was really poorly written myself. I felt bad. Yeah. <laughs> poorly in that pulpy way I was kind of hoping for. And it definitely has that kind of space monster I was asking for in an earlier episode. I wanted some kind of crazy thing. By the way, this recommendation was from To Sir with Lovecraft. Oh, right. Who wrote on that episode, a comment that said, Black Destroyer by A.E. Van Vogt. That's my suggestion. It's considered by some to be the first story of the Golden Age. It was one of the inspirations for Alien. Van Vogt got a $50,000 settlement for it. It was later revised as the first chapter of the novel, The Voyage of the Space Beagle, one of the inspirations for Star Trek. So I'm sure we talked about this on our Alien bonus episode, actually. Folks, if you want to hear that one, it was a good one. Let's learn about uh, A.E. Vogt. Sure. Yeah, he was born in 1912, just plain old Alfred Vogt in Manitoba, Canada as part of a Russian Mennonite community. His dad was a lawyer and his family moved around a lot and it gave him a very unstable childhood and he complained about that throughout his life that it was rough growing up. Because of the stock market crash, his family couldn't afford to send him to college so he did manual labor stuff, but he was always writing. While working as a farmhand, he got his first 
story published in True Crime magazine. He moved on to work for a newspaper, but he still did his crime stories until about 1937. And by 1938, he was getting into sci-fi and attributes John W. Campbell's Who Goes There as his inspiration. Yeah, and Campbell was the editor of Astounding Science Fiction, which published this in 1939, as, as mentioned. As you said, the story was rewritten to become the first chapter of Voyage of the Space Beagle, which was a sci-fi version of Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle, just to add the word space. <laughs> See, I didn't know that title. I didn't get it. So oh. I wonder if people were more aware of that in 1939, or, or maybe I just am specifically unaware of it. You know, I just imagine Snoopy floating around in space. It just doesn't <laughs> suggest high adventure to me. Beagles are, you know, they're good working dogs, but they're really cute. Yeah, but uh, it's a group of guys exploring the galaxy, seeking out new life forms and new civilization. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. I didn't see too much of Alien in this I mean, a bit, but I've read that Discord in Scarlet has an alien with an egg thing in it. That was incorporated into the Voyage of the Space Beagle novel. Right. Yeah, it's the second part of that Space Beagle thing. Yeah, and then the producers of Alien was settled out of court. I'm not familiar. I got to be honest, even when they talk about the Golden Age, I don't necessarily know what that is. Offhand, I'm sure I've read about all this stuff before, but mm -hmm. I'm not familiar enough with the genre to say how groundbreaking this really is in 1939. We do this kind of story in the Antarctic for breakfast on this show, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's like a group of explorers in an unfamiliar terrain versus an intelligent, unknowable creature or set of creatures. And you might say that the way they attack their problem using the specialties, you know, that's pretty Star Trek. You see that in At the Mountains of Madness. That's from three years before this. I think as with Lovecraft, what Vogt is doing is he's putting together ingredients from a few different places to create basically this kind of subgenre where you've got the adventuring elements you'd have in a Flash Gordon serial, because that stuff was already around. Mm -hmm. but with some scientific concepts as plot engines. I think that's the big difference rather than just yeah. fish out of water or stranger in a strange land. You know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, those things were about encountering other cultures mm -hmm. and fighting with them. Whereas here, everything is somehow based on, ooh, this creature has a sense that we don't have or needs something different or has an alien biology. So mm -hmm. that's neat. And yeah. I think that's maybe the groundbreaking thing. It's a little bit more hard sci-fi and less like space opera. Totally, but it's a blend. When World War II broke out, he wasn't drafted in Canada due to his bad eyesight, so he worked as a file clerk for the Canadian Department of National Defense. His first novel, Slan, published by Arkham House, came out in 46, but was serialized earlier in a sounding magazine in 1940. This book might be his most well-known. It's a hmm. mutant story about a nine-year-old boy who's being hunted by humans because he has superpowers. Sound familiar? Hmm. After... World War II, Vogt and his wife moved to California and they became uh, citizens, legally changing his name to Alfred Elton Van Vaught because he was going by pen names earlier. It mm. legally became his name once he moved. As we heard Harlan say, Van Vaught got into Dianetics. He met L. Ron Hubbard in 1945, liked what he was peddling. Now, Dianetics led to Scientology. They aren't quite the same. Dianetics is more secular self-help stuff, whereas Scientology gets into all the alien mysticism kind of thing. And that's why Van Vogt never got into Scientology because he thought it was too hokey pokey. But <laughs> Dianetics, he dug. I just ran a Cthulhu game called The Space Between that was written by Scott Dorward yeah. for the Nameless Horror supplement from Chaosium. Yes. I just felt like I didn't know what a displacer beast was and that might have hurt my public image a little. So I wanted to make up for that by mentioning that I ran that game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scott's great. I've met him on many occasions, and he is uh, a podcaster himself. He does the the Good Friends of Jackson yeah. Elias. Well, his uh, the the space between is a great it game, and it ran very well. And I'm appreciative to Scott. Oh, good. Thanks, Scott. Vote ran a Dianetic Center from 1951 to 1961, and didn't do any writing during that period. He did do 
what was called fix-ups, which was patching up old stories to make novels or new stories. You say what was called fix-ups, but I think he's the one who invented that term. Oh, (laughs) the voyage of the Space Beagle was one of these from 1950. So he did put out a book every year. They were just fix-ups. In 1962, after he closed up his Dianetics thing, he went back to writing. This story, Black Destroyer, begins with a creature called Coral. It's used as a name, but also as the type of creature that it is. The first sentence is an eye roller. On and on, Coral prowled with an exclamation point, (laughs) which I think is meant to express some exasperation in the way that he's prowling around looking for prey. But right away, I thought, you know, if you if you prowl with an exclamation point, you're not really prowling anymore, are you? I don't. (laughs) You need to be subtle. It's. Okay, it's going to be this kind of thing. But there's also a real charm to the way it's written. I don't know. It, it mimics reality in certain ways where people are acting in, in ways that don't necessarily make sense and changing their minds a lot. So this creature is on a planet in search of something called id. It is a hunter. It's also very intelligent. There are ruins of a past civilization, and Coral is from that civilization. It seems that for some unknown reason, it gave up using buildings and technology to hunt creatures for their id. But there are no more id creatures. Coral has seemingly killed everything in the area that he's in. Yeah, or everything. I mean, it's like the last Highlander of a decayed civilization. Hmm. Like Walking Dead, you know? Maybe the name Curl is like a relic of that story. Hmm. These people heard it so much, it got passed down and became a language and a name for the whole species. These are his descendants. Regardless, it's ruthlessly exterminated everything on the planet. It said there was no id to feed the otherwise immortal engine that was his body. I thought it was weird that id... An ego, you know, it said there, uh, the yeah. truth struck in waves like an endless rhythmic ache at the seat of his ego. What's the point of these psychological terms to know. express this alien biology? It was confusing. Maybe it is about how it's sort of a primal need for him, this thing that he takes from other creatures. And I, I don't know why, because we find out it's actually a mineral in people's or these creatures' bodies. So there is yeah. a, a very scientific thing to it, but maybe... If, It's just trying to summon up those emotional connections to that idea of of an id. Well, the reason I found it amusing was because you have a story in which the fundamental flaw of the human characters is that they're unable to imagine things outside of their own human experience or history. And then the author is also doing that by using pop psychological terms to describe an alien creature. It's like he does that before the humans even do it in his own characters and his own story. So it was was like frustrating me a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. It seems a bit hopeless until he sees something come out of the sky. It's a ship. It knows that this is some kind of alien craft, but this creature's people, the the coral, never had use for space travel. So Mm -hmm. they're they're not spacefarers themselves, but they he understands that they are from space immediately. And then he goes to investigate. Now the ship lands outside of a dead city. We get this impression that Coral has been there for a long time, that he's not actually a descendant of these people, but he's actually one of those people. He started living in the city, but then like all this time has passed and now he's just this primal creature. But he actually hasn't lost much of that intelligence. So it was interesting that it wasn't de-evolution, you know? I, I like the way that this story did that alien intelligence. If you think of it as evolved or devolved, you're thinking about people. He's just different. It's a lot like we'll say that dogs or cats have the intelligence of a toddler as a way to estimate that. But it's such a stupid human-centric way of looking at it. They perceive the world in a wholly different way. So you can't even put it on that scale. And if you put a one-year-old dog and a one-year-old person in the wild, they're going to perform radically differently. I I wouldn't (laughs) jump at saying these are, you know, dumb animals. The the frustrating and awesome part of the story is that the crew 
For some reason, they cannot look outside of their own human framework. In a way, I thought this isn't an ad, you know, Alien's not based on this. Prometheus is based on this story. <laughs> yes. Because these characters are idiots. They are not very bright at all. So Coral sees that they are humans coming out of the ship. He knows that they must be some kind of scientists because... <laughs> some kind of scientist is right, Coral. <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks they're going to be easy pickings until he notices that they've got weapons of some kind. So he knows he's got to be clever and cautious. Now we shift to the crew of the ship and we've got Commander Hal Morton. He's in charge. And then we've got this guy, Kent, who's a chemist. Coral approaches them in the open, not being aggressive. And they are shocked, but not too shocked by this. They seem to have encountered other alien creatures before. They debate on whether or not it's intelligent. Seidel, uh, the psychologist of the group, thinks that it is an evolved animal but that at the end of its tentacle, it notices that it has these little digits and it and he thinks, oh, those digits could actually be used like fingers. So maybe it could use technology. There's some questionable things about this. Let's not make any decisions. You would yeah. think would be where that thought would lead. Yeah. One of them says, I'd hate to meet that baby on a dark night in an alley. But again, a hungry one-year-old dog in an alley may be a problem, but a baby in an alley, I wouldn't <laughs> worry about that at all. Coral stops about 10 feet away from them and the sense of it is overwhelming. So humans have it, whatever this it is, but he's got to keep it under control. Coral has a plan. He wants to get on board the ship. He wants to eat them. He <laughs> wants to steal their ship and go back to their planet so he can get all the it he can eat. That's a clear plan. I kind of welcome Coral. I'm kind of <laughs> mad at the humans for stopping this. The uh, scientists start to use their devices to examine Coral. Uh, he tries to communicate with them using his little ear tendrils and they pick up radio yeah. waves on their devices, but they don't understand what these mean, but they can tell that he's trying or attempting to communicate with them. They decide to go in for some lunch and they can tell the creature wants to come in the ship, but the environment on this planet is 28% chlorine and the oxygen on the ship will just kill it. So they open up the door. He can, they can tell he's going to go in. They go, well, this is going to change his mind real fast. But when he goes in the ship, He's fine. It doesn't bother him at all. And they're very surprised by that. Yeah, because he can survive in either of those environments. And I'm surprised because if it may get killed by breathing, because they don't know how severe the reaction is going to be, why let it in? It doesn't know <laughs> what it's doing in their supposition. Or yeah. it may be carrying disease. Again, why yeah. let it in? It's not even like it looks cute. No. The commander, it says the commander chuckled. He watched the cat-like monster follow the first two men through the great door. Yeah, it's kind of so that's how it's described. He goes, let him in. You bet he can go in. That's actually dialogue in there. <laughs> Smith, there's a treasure house for a biologist. Harmless enough if we're careful. We can always handle him. By the way, they're not careful. No. He seems to understand they should be, but he is assuring himself by saying we can always handle him. Why does he think that? No. And he goes, if his anxiety to get inside is any criterion, then our difficulty will be to get rid of him. I thought at that moment, I'm like, honestly, I do want this guy to die and all, but I don't know if I care if I see it. <laughs> <laughs> they send Coral into the elevator up on his own, but when they close the door, so he flips out and he rips the door off. They feel bad because, oh, they're like, oh man, he thinks we try to trick him and capture him. We weren't trying to do that. If I were the ship's accountant, I'd be pretty mad too because <laughs> that's a, probably a very expensive piece of machinery they just carelessly wiped out by throwing an unknown alien organism into it. <laughs> it's so terrible. Did nepotism get these guys jobs on the Space Beagle? Uh, maybe. I think you. their last names are all gonna find out it's Beagle. <laughs> Coral realizes he made a mistake because him wigging out showed that he was dangerous and powerful. 
and they aren't going to be as likely to trust him. They're going to be extra cautious because they can see that he can do this. But he's still going to follow through with his plan. How did they not know he was dangerous before? Did he have to be wearing gang colors or something? <laughs> he's a cat-like monster. And aside from that, a spider can kill you. Oh, yeah. You know, a tiny thing. I was kind of hoping that this would be like one, because there's a chapter break here, and I thought maybe this will be like one of those Antarctica stories. We're going to move on to a group of competent salvage people coming to investigate what happened to these morons. Nope. Now, later on, the men are looking around the ruins, trying to figure out this old civilization and why it died out. Seidel believes that they died out due to lack of food and never got into space travel because the nearest star is 900 light years away. Coral just wanders around and watches them as they are doing this, and they don't seem to mind. They don't pay much attention to him, really. With unwinking eyes, Coral lay and watched. The dragging moments fled. <laughs> what? <laughs> Coral is starving, and he hasn't eaten in like a year or something. No, he's had like only one Pop-Tart for lunch, and that was it. <laughs> Literally starving. <laughs> he wants to wait until he gets on the ship and he can do all of his things, but one of the humans went off on their own, and he can't help himself. So he sneaks away, he kills him, and he eats his id. And we find out that the id is concentrated in the bones. The body's discovered. It has been ripped apart, but none of it seems to be missing. They think some local creature might have tried to eat him, but he would provide them with no kind of sustenance because they're so alien. They think it might be Coral, but the men say, oh, no, he's been around us the whole time. I've seen him the whole bit. And then Seedle says, wait a minute. Are you sure you've had your eye on him the whole time? And they go, well, maybe not. Their certainty that he was around the whole time was dispelled by brief consideration of that thought. Like, that's it. <laughs> Smith broke in. It says the killer attacked Jarvie and then discovered his flesh was alien, uneatable. Just like our big cat. Wouldn't eat anything we set before him. His words died out in sudden queer silence. Then he said slowly, Say, what about that creature? Like, <laughs> what? And then Mort Morton frowned. It's a thought. After all, he's the only living thing we've seen. <laughs> They're really stupid. <laughs> Somebody in this room killed this person. There's only one other person in this room, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> they do consider killing a coral, but it's a new life form, so they don't want to just kill it. Perhaps they can capture it and study it. Mm. One of the men, Karita, says that it's important to figure out why this society civilization collapsed. Such insights could help prevent another human civilization from collapsing. In its f most flourishing age, the sociological effects of such a catastrophe would be a sudden banishing of morals, a reversion to almost bestial criminality, unleavened by any sense of ideal, a callous indifference to death. If this, this pussy is a descendant of such a race, then he will be a cunning creature, a thief in the night, a cold-blooded murderer, who would cut his own brother's throat for gain? This is supposed to be the key insight that allows them to defeat the creature as it's introduced in the end. He says, we understood he was a criminal. I think what he's trying to say is it might seem like an animal, but it's not an animal and it can be capable of great deception. Now they wonder if Pussy, if he'll be able to understand that they suspect him for the murder and they think he won't be able to. So they say, let's keep him pairs and keep your guard up but let's not kill him. Again, stupid idea. Kent suspects that Pussy actually did take something from the body, but he needs to do some tests to figure out what it is. I'm going to guess that these guys don't do well at tests. <laughs> <laughs> so later that night, Morton finds Kent in the lab. He notes that the murdered man's body was missing phosphorus, all of it. So they decide they should test Pussy with a bowl of organic phosphorus and see if he bites. Mm -hmm. They try a bowl, but Coral knows it's a trap, so he ignores it. He gets a danger sense, so he throws the bull at Kent, and then he grabs him with a tentacle. Kent blasts him with his vibration gun. It does nothing to Coral. 
Coral knows the vibration setting to him is harmless, but that they also have atomic disintegrators, which will kill him. Mm -hmm. But Morton yells, everyone, stop fighting. Yeah, stop just for this quick aside, if for nothing else. This thing is after phosphorus, a specific element necessary for life. So it's like a specific thing for him. It's kind of like the salt vampire in Star Trek. But then I thought, what is... Well, now, wait a minute. This is starting to freak me out because what does it mean to be a Dracula? Does it just because this is I thought, oh, cool transition from Marches of Dracula's to this because it's kind yeah. of a, it's like a phosphorus vampire. But wait, yeah. what are you even saying? Because does having a restricted diet make you a vampire? Like if you have celiac disease and you're on a planet where all the food has gluten except for some potatoes, that's the one thing they grow that doesn't. Are you a potato vampire? Because that's the only <laughs> thing you can eat. <laughs> I'm in real crisis about this. I, we don't have to answer it here, but this is something that next year we might have to take up in marches for Draculas. Because we've wow. been, you know, a lot of these Draculas we've covered don't drink blood. They drink your energy or they drink your success or it's the ground and it drinks your vitality mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. Yeah. Why do you call it a salt vampire and not just uh, somebody who's, it's like a vegan diet, but for salt? Kent gets in trouble for using his gun on the creature. Kent is the only sane one here saying that this thing is dangerous. But Morton <laughs> says that one creature against a hundred men is not a threat. It's something to be studied. But they're not the Roman legion. It's not like they no. stand there a hundred abreast. Monsters tend to, you know, have a one-by-one tactic for murdering, and they typically choose sleeping hours to do said yeah. murdering. They just take it one person at a time. Yeah. Now, Smith points out that the gun hit the creature right in the head, and it didn't hurt it. They might not be able to hurt it at all. <laughs> so if this could be potentially a super dangerous creature. Let it out. But no, this is the plan. They've got a cage with four-inch micro-steel thick walls, and they decide they're going to keep him in there. Corral Coral into uh, this little cage, and then they close it. It locks behind him with an electric lock, and Coral is like, idiots, I can open this lock with my vibration tendrils. In this cage, Coral can sense that the vibrations are coming in. They're taking pictures of his body, and that they're able to monitor him while he's in here. Anytime they see this animal do something intelligent, they interpret that as the height of its intelligence. So they'll be, it'd be like if I saw, I saw Lackey use a vending machine. So now we know the limits of his abilities. (laughs) If you hit him in the face, he'll just try to get Cheetos from you. We witnessed it. (laughs) Coral waits until night, undoes the lock, sneaks out, silently goes into the crewman's rooms and kills them. He managed to get about 12 of them before he hears the watchman coming. Is the, is the word watchman really an appropriate term for these people? <laughs> no. So Coral goes back to his cage and locks the door again. The bodies are detected and they first think somebody did this. One of us, one of our people did this. Space madness is a problem, but they haven't had a case of space madness in 50 years. And Pussy, he's still in his cage. And we throw space madness around here and there on the show. They literally call it space madness in this story. Yes. Which is a lot of points in favor of this story. That kind of brought me back on board. They're pretty sure that the cat-like monster killed one guy. All these guys are dead in a similar fashion. It says, he looked up grimly, his heavy chin outthrust as he stared into the stern faces that surrounded him. If anybody's got so much as a germ of an idea, bring it out. (laughs) Maybe it's the monster? Morton says some other genius stuff. He goes, it's no use suspecting Pussy Doctor. He's in his cage. There can't be any suspicion, unless there's a new science here beyond anything we can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's that. 
Commander, yeah. how did he get this rank? Though Smith says that Pussy's pictures were blurred when we try to scan him, they begin to figure out that Coral can control vibrations, and that if he can do that, maybe he could undo the lock. There's an unnamed character who's totally had it. He goes, what in the name of all hells have we got here? One of the men groaned. Why, if he can control that power and send it out in any vibrations, there's nothing to stop him killing all of us. And then this, which proves, snapped Morton, that he isn't invincible, or he would have done it long ago. What? <laughs> Look, the humans have atomic power, but they haven't killed us with it. That's evidence that they won't use it. That unnamed crewman, the poor guy, you see, he actually oh. was, got a merit-based assignment. He had no idea it was the Beagle family running this thing. This is some serious, stupid expert stuff here where yeah, these guys are supposed to be really good at this and they're really terrible. Yeah. So they try to electrocute Coral, mm -hmm. but it blows out their camera so they can't see inside anymore. They get their disintegrators going, but when they open up the cage, they can see the back wall has been eaten away. It's been dissolved. It seems Pussy can vibrate metal in such a way that he causes it to turn to dust. They hear the elevator going and it's Pussy on the run. They quickly get on their spacesuits in case Pussy does anything crazy. Well, this is a smart thing here yeah. that they get on their spacesuits because it's like, well, if he depressurizes the ship, at least we'll be able to breathe. They still have control of the ship from the control room, but Morton wants to test this whole situation out a bit. Because he busted, the Pussy busted into the engine room. You know, he's taking control, yes. so they think, of the ship. It's so Star Trek. Yeah, it really that is. Part. So he sends some guys in with atomic disintegrators to try and work on the doors of the engine room. It's going to take a while because they're so thick. Since Pussy's vibration powers aren't stopping the disintegrators, they decide to set up their own discordant vibrations to throw him off while they have the ship move around at high acceleration. They have vibration force fields that should be able to stop anything Pussy can throw at them. So they're going to work on the doors at the same time that this is going on and it will overwhelm Pussy so they can get into the engine room. Inside the engine room, Coral is building his own little ship. He's seen how their ship works and now he can emulate it on a smaller scale. This so guy. he uses his vibration powers. I thought this was neat to weld yeah. the bits together. Agreed. I mean, I, I was never off the monster side. This yeah. is pretty capable stuff. The monster's pretty rad. It's all the stupid humans that I've got the problem with. Uh, just as he's finishing up, they finally attack. Coral is able to get inside his little ship. He disintegrates the outer wall and he blasts out into space. And he begins flying back to his planet. Well, actually, it's, it's to his own son, which was crazy. It said there were caves where he could hide and with other corals build secretly a spaceship in which they could reach other planets safely now that he knew how. In a sun? And so others of his species are up in the sun. Are you sure? Yeah. It says Coral saw a dim reddish ball. His own sun, he realized. He headed toward it at full speed. What? <laughs> I know. I missed that. <laughs> well, I'm, I was like, I guess this monster cat can withstand a sun's heat and radiation. There's no way the middle of that planet, even with caves, wouldn't be. There's no caves on the sun. It's a giant ball of plasma. There's no... Right, but maybe it's not a sun. It's, uh, it's his way of... I mean, this guy's thrown around in any id in ego terms. Wow. Okay, that's just nutty. Mm -hmm. Now, anyway... See, your brain did a little work to make this make sense. Now, what Coral doesn't get or that he missed in his little shipbuilding is the faster than light drive of the ship because they quickly maneuver in front of his ship and Coral yeah. can't get away. He's trapped. So Coral knows that he's caught. He freaks out in a mad fury and then he finally vibrates his body until all of the id falls out of it. They found him lying dead in a little pool of phosphorus. Poor pussy, said Morton. I wonder what he thought when he saw us appear ahead of him 
after his own son disappeared. Knowing nothing of anti-accelerators, he couldn't know that we could stop short in space, whereas it would take him more than three hours to decelerate, and in the meantime he'd be drawing farther and farther away from where he wanted to go. He couldn't know that by stopping, we flashed past him at millions of miles a second. Of course, he didn't have a chance once he left our ship. The whole world must have seemed topsy-turvy. Never mind the sympathy, he heard Kent say behind him. We've got a job. To kill every cat in that miserable world. Corita murmured softly. That should be simple. They are but primitives. And we have merely to sit down, and they will come to us, cunningly expecting to delude us. Smith snapped. You fellows make me sick. Pussy was the toughest nut we ever had to crack. He had everything he needed to defeat us. Morton smiled as Corita interrupted blandly. Exactly, my dear Smith, except that he reacted according to the biological impulses of his type. His defeat was already foreshadowed when we unerringly analyzed him as a criminal from a certain era of his civilization. It was history, Honorable Mr. Smith. Our knowledge of history that defeated him, said the Japanese archaeologist, reverting to the ancient politeness of his race. The knowledge of history didn't help them at all. They yeah. had a piece of technology that the cat didn't have. And I would guess that these chuckleheads didn't invent that technology. So <laughs> there's so much in this that is actually what I hate about humanity in general that I think that maybe sure. you're getting a little antagonism from me that's extra. Yeah, there's some neat ideas in here. But like you said, the, the, the characters are ridiculous. They, they do really dumb stuff the whole time. And I want to kind of give it a pass because it's such, such an early piece of sci-fi that, you know, this inspired a lot of stuff. I enjoy the flaws and things. It does put you in space world. There's a certain kind of logic yeah. to it. And even though I'm frustrated with these characters' choices, it's not like people don't make this choice and, and uh, these types of choices. Sure. I want to thank our reader, George Woodruff. I hope you keep eating those potato chips, man. Don't ever <laughs> stop the dream. That's a delicious one to have. And I also want to thank some of our glorious patrons. Starting with Ziggy Bart Dust. I'd like to thank Patrick Russell. I'd like to thank Kenneth Wyatt. Noah Boss, thank you. James, thank you. Photo Matto, thank you. Whitney Schroyer, thank you so much. I'd like to thank Jackson Baird. The Big Fish, thank you. And lastly, I'd like to thank Luke Hyatt. Thank you guys so much for your support. This is our free episode, which is available to the public. If you want more of our show, please consider subscribing on Patreon to get a bunch of great stuff. We're going to be back with some Clark Ashton Smith wacky science fiction. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to hppodcraft.com. Strange studies of strange stories. hppodcraft.com.